Hello, fellow kids, and welcome to episode 57 of Hello, Fellow Kids. This is the podcast where we read predominantly middle grade novels and give you a book report. Woo! Happy New Year, everyone. We hope you enjoyed your whatever winter holidays you may or may not celebrate, or at least the time off presumably given to you uh, for other people celebrating them. And we or hope not. you... Or, yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> hope you enjoyed or didn't yeah. enjoy anything you may or may not have encountered. No, I mean, like, I mean, like, the time, we probably didn't get time off. Yeah. And we hope you enjoyed our holiday clips episode. It was, uh, it was definitely different, but it also was a lot less work, which was really Woo-hoo. nice. A <laughs> lot less work. Yeah, no notes. No I notes. I mean, I'm still... I'm still doing no notes today, but like <laughs> she's going noteless. <laughs> I'm not the synopsis bitch this this month, so I'm good. That's true. Uh, this month we read The Vanderbeekers of 141st Street by Karina Yan Glaser. You know, uh, you were talking so recently about like how you were concerned that we were with um the uh, small spaces series wrapping up mm-hmm. that we weren't going to have any more series mm-hmm. and we discovered Amari, the mm-hmm. Amari s- series and it's fantastic. And that's mm-hmm. our new fable Haven. Mm-hmm. And um, then we kind of tapped out on the Penderwicks, but I feel like these, this series could easily step into Penderwick shoes because it's hitting the same vibes that you want from a Penderwick book. Without being Penderwicks. I think it definitely exists in the same, like, the same subspace of middle grade fiction. Um, yeah, like charming day in the life, uh, slice of life kind of story. I will say I had more problems with this than Penderwicks. There, I, there was one thing in particular I really didn't like, but, um, yeah. I remember us not being completely sold with the first Penderwick book. That's true. It did take until the second one before we... So, like, mm-hmm. th- this is like a... I'm not like, oh, I would hate to read another Vanderbeekers, but I'm a little more take it or leave it at this point right now. And um, we're. it's going to be interesting getting into this, how much of that is colored by something very specific that happens pretty early on in the book. One might even say it is the book, uh, but we'll get into that Um it is about a family living in Harlem and their neighborhood of slightly eccentric, but very mostly kind uh, neighbors. And they get some bad news right before the holidays. And this is about how they go about trying to solve that problem. I had to read the last chapter because I was like, I'm going to be stressed about this the whole time. So when I saw everything works out in the end, I'm like, Cool. All right. Now I can read this book and not feel stressed. That's just how I've been taking care of myself lately. If you need to read the last chapter of a book when you're just like, I don't know how I'm going to like how this plays out. You go and do that. Don't let the people go like, don't cheat. Who are you cheating? Who are you cheating? You're not cheating anybody. You're making yourself feel more comfortable because I know I uh, this is about a family who's got their their house, uh, their uh, apartment they live in. The landlords decided they're not going to renew their lease. And this is right before Christmas. I couldn't handle that level of stress, so I had to make sure that they were okay. <laughs> yeah, take care of yourself. Don't don't be like, I'm. oh, that's a cheat to read the last part of the book. No, it's not. Dude, the number of times in the last few months, uh, thanks to therapy, that I have realized that I, I hold myself to like, rules, that the only person who cares if I break the rules is me, and I'm also the person who needs to break the rules to be healthier. It's like, we we trap ourselves in things a lot more than we need to, so, like, yeah, if, if, if checking the end of a book sometimes, because it'll make the reading experience better, like, yeah, sure. (laughs) There's... Or reading Wikipedia to find out what happens. Yeah. Or reading Wikipedia to find out what happens to the rest of the series because you can't be bothered to read the rest of it, but you also feel like uh, you're you're a quitter if you don't read the whole thing. You're not a quitter. You just value your time. Totally, yeah. So, should we get into the Vanderbeekers? 
Let's get into the Vanderbeekers. Okay. All right. Uh, this book is actually broken up very neatly into uh, days. It takes place over basically a week. Um, so we can just take it day by day, and it'll be very Perfect. easy for us. Um, yes. We are introduced to our protagonists, the Vanderbeekers. The family consists of five siblings. Jesse, Issa, Oliver, Hyacinth, and Lainey, as well as their mother and father and three pets. Our story begins with a family meeting, which brings some bad news. The kids quickly convince themselves that their parents are divorcing, but it's not that. No, their, land will, their landlord slash upstairs neighbor, Mr. Biederman, who the kids have never even met but always seems to complain about noise or other petty issues, uh, he has opted to not renew the family's lease. As such, they will be moving out of the brownstone that they've been living in for the last six years since before Lainey was even born and must leave by the end of the month which is in 11 days. Their parents insist that whatever happens, things will work out. They ask if they'll still live in the neighborhood, and their father, who has lived in Harlem his whole life, can't actually give them a definitive answer on this. The kids are understandably distressed, and each process the news in their own way. Jesse, who's the oldest and most scientific, tries to understand from the perspective of Newton's third law and figure out what action caused this reaction. Oliver wants to lash out and spray paint Biederman's door. Lainey just thinks the old man needs a hug. Eventually, the kids decide to brainstorm ways to show Biederman that he should let them stay. They will reconvene later that evening to discuss the plan, and they must keep it a secret from their parents. While the girls start looking into holiday ideas like singing Christmas and Hanukkah carols, or getting poinsettias with all the money they don't have, Oliver breaks the news that the internet has been shut off to avoid their parents having to pay for an extra month. Oliver goes outside and talks to his friend and neighbor Jimmy L. via walkie-talkie. Jimmy L. is upset by the news and offers to help in any way he can. The postman, Mr. Jones, comes to deliver the mail, and Hyacinth breaks the news to him that they're moving. He is caught off guard because he's been the family's mailman since their dad was born. He asks the kid's mom if Biederman is their landlord, and comments that Biederman used to teach art history at the college, but had some hard times later in life. He heads off to continue his route, taking with him some dog treats for the neighborhood pups that Hyacinth made. Lainey transforms into her alter ego, Panda Lainey, by putting on a white coat and bugging her mom for carrots, which she eats until she's earned a cookie instead. She shares a carrot with their pet rabbit, Paganini, then takes a cookie to bring to Hyacinth. Jesse and Issa, who are twins and the oldest children, are discussing their plans for Biederman when their mom comes in, and they change topics to planning the Christmas dinner. Their mom gives them her phone to use to look up recipes, and they plan the menu. They briefly wonder if they should invite Biederman amongst the other neighbors they want to invite, but that probably won't go well. Their dad returns from his second job as building superintendent and commends Issa on her violin playing, which she's been working on for years. Oliver returns to his room, which is a converted walk-in closet to give him some privacy from his four sisters, and loses himself in a book before dinner. At dinner, he tries to get more information about Biederman out of their parents, their dad admits that even when he has to fix stuff in Biederman's apartment, Biederman locks himself in his bedroom and makes their dad use his superintendent key to let himself in. The man sure likes his privacy. After dinner, the kids sneak into the roof, sneak onto the roof, where they discuss their ideas for what to do about Biederman. Jesse runs a Rube Goldberg water spout that she set up on the side of the building, and the kids take some time to appreciate the sights and sound of their neighborhood before buckling down with planning. It's eventually decided that Oliver's plan, which we still don't know yet, is the best one to start with, so beginning tomorrow, they will set Operation Biederman in motion. I believe you mean Bezelman? Uh Yes, you're right. Uh, Lainey is four. Uh, four and three quarters, sorry. And uh, she cannot pronounce Biederman's name. Yeah, it's Bezelman. So she she is our baddie stand-in. Oh, she's so baddie. <laughs> it, she's yeah. I was just like, we've got our baddie. <laughs> Except uh, kind of baddie, but opposite of baddie because Lainey's like hug everybody. Well, baddie's like, I don't know you. That's my burst. I don't know you. <laughs> <laughs> and mommy or daddy says I don't have to talk to anyone I don't know. Well, Lainey's just like I've never met anyone I didn't like. Right. Come on over here. <laughs> Um, all the illustrations, except for the map, are done by the author, which is fun because there are a lot of really cute, uh, there's like little doodles of some of the buildings in the neighborhood and, um, like, I think there's a, a blueprint of, uh, like a science experiment at some point and stuff like that. So that's always cute. Yeah. I like uh, those. Yeah. Um, 
see what else I put in here before I get to my... I have one big thing that I need to address. Um, yeah, I'm kind of waiting for it. I'm like, what's it going to be? Okay. So here's here's my big issue. And um, I thought that this was... I was kind of outraged that they were, you know, they're leaving so, so soon. Like, they've been there for, like, six years and they have to leave at the end of the year. I was like, that's awful. I went down a rabbit hole of... New York City legal documents. And I found that landlords are landlords are required to provide notice to tenants if they intend to raise rent more than 5% or if they do not intend to renew the lease. The landlord must provide such notice at least 90 days for a tenant who has lived in the apartment for more than two years or for a tenant with a lease term of at least two years. Meaning that the fact that he didn't tell them until 11 days before is against tenant rights and by extension, they are allowed to just continue living there and say that they were not provided adequate uh, lead time and they would just get to keep living in their space and Biederman would have to completely restart the process of telling them to leave, which would grant them another three months past the date that he chose to do that for them to stay. So I just kept getting very frustrated that no one was acknowledging the fact that they don't have to leave. Well, um... My question is, my my rebuttal to that, even though you're you're perfectly correct, I was thinking something along that line too. Of like, I think he needs to give more notice to this, and I go like, okay, when did he give them this notice? And he he might have given it to them a lot sooner, but they were trying to work something out beforehand. And now we're at crunch time, and now it's like this looks like it's going to go forward. We have to tell the children, so the kids are just finding out about this, but we don't know that Biederman just told the parents this because do we get a scene with the parents getting the call or anything like that we have we do we do have a scene where when uh mr jones comes to visit and he is like is it true you're moving and the mom says that they just found out so unless she's also lying to them which i think is possibly reasonable in real life but i think that's a stretch to uh, like to assume that rather than to assume what is presented in the text I think that they did not know. It just doesn't seem likely to me. I'm going to try and find that Mr. Jones scene, because I think she might have just meant the kids just found out. We just found out. But also, we don't know when that happened. Because she could have meant, like, the beginning of the month, she and her husband just found out. And, like, again, it's like, oh, we're scrambling. And then eventually been like, we gotta, we got to tell them something. Yes, but again, counterpoint, that's not 90 days. Oh, sure isn't. You're, that's perfectly <laughs> correct. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was just like, I'm pretty sure there's, there's even like, I, I think, um, that care, someone character was like, like some of the, one of the kid characters was like, aren't there like laws <laughs> to keep them from kicking you out? Like giving you like a couple weeks notice. Yeah. And, uh, I think also how their particular lease was worded meant that that could happen i think that the dad said so i was just like well if that's what the lease says but i mean that would still go against and at what year did that um note did that uh law go into effect because we don't know what time what um this is like penderwicks where we're not entirely sure right they um, do have internet and smartphones yeah so, so it's at least 2010 yeah, I yeah I don't. There's there's nothing in here that would suggest that it isn't contemporaneous with when it was published, which is 2017. Um, well, there's the scene where Isa's like, I, I uh, when when she's with Benny out outside on Christmas, and she says years later she'd always remembered the look on his face, mm-hmm. which made me think like, oh, this is so. Where are we at? <laughs> yeah, that was that was. I mean, we'll get to that way later, but the, that was that was. Uh, an unexpected line, for sure. It was unexpected, yeah. It um, gave me pause. Yeah. So, I guess... I guess my big thing is that I... Weirdly enough, despite all of the crazy fantasies that we've read, I had a harder time suspending my disbelief just because there were so many people... There were so many very smart people in their neighborhood that I was like, how is nobody acknowledging the fact that this literally cannot happen? Why are we all just like, oh, we're so sad that you're leaving? 
and that just continued I mean, I, to frustrate me. <laughs> I guess it didn't give, it didn't, like, I was just like, I'm pretty sure that, you know, like, yeah, there's laws to protect against this, but also, um, New York landlords are some of the scummiest fucking people in the world, so I was able to buy it, just because, <laughs> like, they, they don't follow laws, are you kidding me? Do you know how many places are completely, like, they're not up to code, like, at all? There's a law that it's supposed to be up to code, and like, yeah, there's a law, but like, who's coming over around to enforce it? No one. So yeah, like, it's actually shows what a nice person you are that you're like, there's laws. Well, I'm like, laws aren't gonna stop <laughs> shitty people from being shitty. Maybe if they got some, and where are they gonna get legal help this close to Christmas when everybody's like, not around? Like, everybody's, like, probably has, like, time off and some of these law offices are going to be closed. And who are they going to afford to be able to go after Biederman to make sure they can stay in their house? It, it's, like, you're perfectly right. They should have 90 days. And I was thinking, like, okay, whatever, like myself. But, again, landlords are corrupt. They are. I... Even, I would, if, even if you think you got a good one, no, you don't. I would love to see an alternate universe version of this story where they find out uh, the rules and they decide to just continue living there. And then the mom just squatters rights. Yeah. The mom, the mom just like has a standoff with Biederman because she's like, nah, you can't do that. I'm sorry. Your kid died. That doesn't mean you get to kick us out at Christmas. You piece of shit. (laughs) Literally cannot do it. Sorry. If you want to start filing the paperwork now, we'll start back again. Oh, two and a half months. Yeah. We'll be out in March. (laughs) Bye-bye. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, other than that, I, I mean, we get little snippets introducing, um, all of the, the kids and stuff and their different personalities, cause you got, you got the little kid, you got the sciencey one that, like, is, is, you know, almost book smart to a fault sort of situation. Yeah, we got, we got the sky. Yeah. <laughs> we got the, we got the girl in STEM. Issa's the musician, and Hyacinth is the craft, crafter, and yeah. Oliver's our bookworm. Oliver's yeah. our Jane, but like kind of a mirror world, kind of meaner Jane. Mm-hmm. I think that he he probably gets possibly the biggest like character arc in this book. Mm-hmm. He sure does. Um, because he I love that for him. <laughs> yeah, like at the start, it's very much that he is um he's selfish, but. Uh, he, I, he, I don't think he really, he, nece- he doesn't necessarily mean to be selfish. He's still just figuring out the idea of, like, there are people other than me, and, like... Yeah. He's selfish in the self-centered kid kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's that, it's kind of just awakening For- to you're one of billions of people on the planet. Like, we all unlearn that at some, or we don't. <laughs> We're supposed but, to. <laughs> we're supposed to unlearn that, but I think a lot of people, like, I don't know, just dig in. It's like, this is what it's going to be. I'm just going to, it's all about me all the time. <laughs> the beginning of this book, the way they break it to the kids that they're moving, of course they thought divorce because he says, you kids know we love you very much, right? Yeah. That's always do- how... <laughs> I'm like, why did you say that? Either you're getting a divorce or someone's dying. <laughs> That's like the, uh... <laughs> Crap, I'm, I forget what show it's from, but it's like, we're having a fire! Sale! Oh, Arrested Development. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Anything else for this section? I just wanted to say, when we find out that their house... I keep saying house, it is a brownstone... But um, I when they sit when they're gonna be losing their apartment, I thought it was gonna be because Biederman was selling to a developer who was gonna like tear down the old brownstone or renovate it into like higher end apartments and hike up rent, and that this would be a story about gentrification. Um, pleasantly surprised it didn't turn out that way. I thought because I was like you know I was in this whole like. He can't do that sort of thing. I thought there was going to be some sort of prejudice involved for him making those decisions, which also is not what it was. This is this is not a book that is terribly concerned with uh, with race or class as far as uh, as far as discrimination and stuff goes, which uh, I think is is 
nice to not have to deal with those topics in every book. Yeah. Um, especially nice for people that are, you know, not white, having an opportunity to read stories about characters that look like them and have lives similar to them without it always being, like, about race. Like, I know that, like, I understand that if you are a, in any sort of minority group, your life is about that minority way more than it should be just because of how our American society tends to operate. But I think it's nice to just be like, yeah, like, there wasn't a whole thing about, like, you know, the black family on the uh, on the block or whatever. Oh, there's not even any mention of crime. Yeah. In fact, this is, is a like, very, like, this is a very, like, safe area to the point where you've yes. got, like, nine-year-olds walking around without phones and stuff like that, so. Totally, yeah. I What I also liked about this is that you're, you're getting the Penderwick vibes, but the thing is, like, Penderwick's and then Ramona before it, very, very suburban to the right. point where it's like, this is the only place where it can be like this is like in safe suburbia or in a cityscape. And you still have the same like close knit family vibe of like all just all these working class families on this street with um, kids that are all similar ages. And um, there's probably still areas of New York that are still like that, that the fucking gentrifiers haven't come in and priced these poor people, you know, these people out. Who hey, don't worry, we're working be- on it. No kidding, right? <laughs> God, quit gentrifying. You know, like on their street, they're like, uh oh, you know, the Castleman's is gone, but they've put up like a, um, what's an annoying hipster thing? Uh, like a micro bar or something. Right. <laughs> IPAs for everyone. Yeah, some an- annoying, trendy restaurant that all the fucking chuckle fucks who live in Brooklyn are going to come over with their dumb, ironic glasses and their t-shirts and shit and be all like, you know, I really love the city. And it's like, shut up. <laughs> I, I hate you. This me, the suburban person yelling about <laughs> gentrifiers. But no. Anyway, yeah, I was happy to see like a, a cityscape given this kind of uh, treatment that it doesn't always have to be like a pleasant small town in New England, you know. Well, I mean, we are in New England, but still, is New York New England? I don't think so. I think New England is primarily like Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and then arguably uh, Pennsylvania? Question mark. Not even Massachusetts. That might be the one I'm thinking of. Okay, we're in New England. Uh, looks like you were right. Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island is uh, what um, New England is in uh, the U.S. So, yeah, this isn't like a small town in New England. This is New York, New York City on Manhattan Island, no less, in the neighborhood of Harlem. Okay, I think that probably it for me for my thoughts okay saturday hyacinth wakes up early a habit she got into to spend more time alone with her parents she snuggles up with her dad then laney comes and joins them and it's cute once the household is awake it's time to begin operation beaterman jesse and laney head down the road to castleman's bakery passing several friendly adults in the neighborhood on the way the bakery is run by the baker and his wife along with their eighth grader son benny who is close friends with Issa. He's real friendly with the girls and asks Jesse if she thinks Issa would be interested in going to the eighth grade dance with him. Jesse doesn't like the idea of her and Issa having different experiences after so long leading twin lives, and she tells Benny that Issa would have no interest in going. Because she's also a very scientific sort of person, she completely misses the emotional undertones and leaves Benny kind of heartbroken. Jesse and Lainey return to the brownstone with baked goods for Biederman, and Jesse takes them up to Biederman's door along with some tea. However, she loses her balance and spills everything on the floor and dashes away in fear. Her siblings clean up the mess, but Jesse knows Biederman already saw through the peephole. After breakfast, Hyacinth decides it's time to be the brave one. She custom makes Biederman a placemat with his name on it and takes it up to his apartment. Biederman surprisingly opens the door, and Hyacinth is horrified by the bearded, black-clad man she sees. He tells her to leave him alone, and she does just that. Oliver goes to check on Hyacinth, 
who is recovering from her encounter with Biederman. Meanwhile, Lainey takes Paganini the bunny upstairs to the apartment between theirs and Biederman's, where a kind old couple named Miss Josie and Mr. Jeet live. She asks them about Biederman, and there are more allusions to something bad happening to him. They mention he used to love playing jazz records. Then Mr. Jeet helps Lainey train Paganini to come as a trick to show off at the Christmas dinner. Later, Jesse goes to talk to Issa and finds her trying on dresses with their friend Allegra. Seeing Issa care about being a girly girl makes Jesse feel weird, but Issa seems to be having fun. Jesse begins to wonder if she did the right thing when she talked to Benny. Allegra learns about the upcoming move and immediately starts coming up with insane ideas to help them stay. Meanwhile, Oliver writes a threatening note and slips it under Biederman's door. When he comes back, Jesse asks him if she should dress nicer, and Oliver doesn't have time to play what does she really mean by this conversation, so he ducks into his room. Issa and Allegra head to the bakery themselves, and Issa is confused when Benny acts standoffish and later downright hostile. She tries to tell him about the move, but he interrupts, thinking she's trying to tell him she's not interested in him. Neither one actually says what they're talking about, resulting in one of Mara and my least favorite tropes of miscommunication. <laughs> uh, back at the Brownstone, Mama Vanderbeeker has begun packing in earnest. Lainey pokes in and finds some jazz records that belong to a previous tenant. How convenient. She convinces Oliver that they should take one to Biederman, so they choose a Duke Ellington record and leave it at Biederman's door. Mama gets a call from Biederman, who tells her that he will begin allowing the apartment to be toured by potential renters the next day, before the Vanderbeekers have even moved out. Mama tries to fight it, but it's in their lease. Papa takes the kids to get a Christmas tree to allow Mama time to pack. On the way, they run into more neighbors who know and love them. The older kids want a perfect tree, but Lainey convinces them all to get a Charlie Brown tree instead. They bring it home and decorate it, which is a bit of a challenge considering its lack of branches. That evening, the parents discuss potential moving options, which, based on their budget, may mean moving out of the city. Hyacinth overhears this and passes it along to her siblings. They grow more and more worried about the situation, but Issa insists that she has a new plan that's sure to work. Oh, boy. Yeah, the... The miscommunication trope is very annoying, and, like, I was particularly irritated with Benny for this, because, like, you asked her sister as a hypothetical, not, could you go ask her that, and now you're mad. <laughs> you're such a dipshit. Like, I was, like, mad at him, and, like, if he'd let her speak, she would have been like, yeah, we're moving. And yeah. She could have just, like, said it, like, that's what I'm talking about, what are yep. you talking about? Because uh, Issa is, like, much more direct person. She's, yeah. like, the most direct person in this book. So, I don't know. Like, don't don't marry Benny. It just sounds like a lot of pointless fighting. Uh, and um, I felt I got pretty upset at poor little Hyacinth getting just screamed at. Because, like, I don't know if you ever had an adult who wasn't your parent yelling at you, but it's so scary. So it, it, it's terrifying. We're just like, this grown up is like unsafe and I don't really know them and they're yelling at me. It's uh, not great. Yeah. So, um, especially when all she's doing is giving this stupid, stupid, ridiculous man a goddamn Christmas present. <laughs> it's like, okay, dickhead, here, Merry Christmas. Um, I would like to take a moment to read out loud. Oliver's <laughs> Oliver's note to Biederman. <laughs> yeah. To the scoundrel on the third floor. I hope your conscience has robbed you of sleep. Being mean will earn you a black spot, and you know what that means. Be nice or watch out. Woe be to the man who does not heed my advice. Signed, your greatest foe. <laughs> I think we should have just sent him the black spot, honestly. Yeah. Like, hon, just just send the threat. <laughs> Maybe this is just my like media literacy isn't the right word, but like me media exposure, uh, giving me different expectations. But I guess I'm kind of surprised that in the six years they've been here, this is the first time they've actually tried like doing anything with Biederman. Like, I feel like if I had. Like, because it's like a, it, it's in like Harold and stuff like that. If you have like a weird neighbor that no one's ever seen, that breeds curiosity in children. And I, I feel like they would have done some more like, you know, investigating about him prior to 
all of this. I mean, they would be curious, but he's just so unpleasant. And was like, you're dribbling the basketball outside. You're like, do you want me dribbling it on the walls? <laughs> What's your point? You crack ass. I'll, I'll bring but it up. Like, we'll dribble it in your living room. There you go. Yeah. How about that, dickhead? <laughs> I'll toss it down the stairs over and over. So I just I think that level of like petty bitchery is enough to be all like, OK, we're just and plus the parents probably like just stay away from him. He doesn't like us. And they're like, oh, OK, fine. But now they're doing all this because it's like, OK, we're in desperation mode. Yeah, we're, we want to keep what's living it gonna do, in kick us out? Exactly. There's like nothing to lose now. So now we can like double down on irritating him. <laughs> I would be like the whole time, like, God, leave me alone. <laughs> I felt it was, this was when they go up to bring up the nice breakfast for him. And, uh, Laney just starts pounding on the door. I was like, that's such a baddie move. Just right. do that. Just like immediately pounding it. And then it would be Sky who'd be like, stop it. And like trying to hold her back. And then would like topple the, the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was just like, wow, six years without seeing this dude. I'd be like, are we sure there's a Biederman up there? Right. <laughs> Do we just oh, get a God. like a, a free extra apartment? Like, <laughs> and he's got like blackout curtains on the window, so even when they go on the fire escape to go up, go up, like they can't peek into his apartment at all. Yeah. Okay. Sunday, December twenty second. The kids are canvassing their neighborhood, having their neighbors sign a petition to convince Biederman to let them stay. Lainey bribes people with hugs, Hyacinth gives out dog treats, and Oliver's friends make up fake names to increase the number of signatures. Issa talks to Mrs. Castleman, who didn't know they were moving. Issa says Benny already knew, which isn't true, but she thinks it is. Mrs. Castleman drops the petition in shock when she remembers that Biederman is their landlord and awkwardly walks away. Lainey gets cold, so she goes inside and Mr. Jeet helps her practice tricks with Paganini to great success. She also leaves a small Christmas tree, which she originally brought for Miss Josie and Mr. Jeet, outside Biederman's door. When she heads home, the tree is gone. Oliver is struggling to find gifts for his family because he's not very good at being selfless and also only has a couple dollars to his name. He goes to play basketball with his friends, who all pitch in odds and ends from their pockets when he explains his situation. Thanks for the rubber bands, guys! At the brownstone, Issa finally convinces Jesse to come to the basement with her. Jesse has been scared to go down there the whole time they've lived at the brownstone, but it's Issa's special violin practice space, and sharing it is important to her. They go downstairs, and Jesse is ashamed to it took her so long to come down because Issa has hung decorations and soundproofing rugs to make it a wonderful space. They reminisce about the time Jesse told off an older student heckling one of Issa's performances, and then just appreciate each other's company for a bit. Oliver returns home and starts making Christmas present plans, but his mom interrupts and asks him to deliver cookies to their neighbors. His first stop is Angie's place, and Angie brings him inside so they can research Biederman on her computer. They are not successful, but she promises to continue the search tonight. They then go out and deliver cookies together, and when Oliver brings the last of them back for Biederman, he also leaves behind the last of the cookies meant for himself as a peace offering. He takes the trash bag Biederman left outside the door as an additional help, and inside he finds the shattered remains of the record Laney gave him. The siblings convene for another meeting. The petition went well, and the gifts to Biederman kept coming, but they still need to really connect with him. They decide to visit the local college where Biederman worked, so they can see if anyone in the art history department knows about him. When they're reminiscing about uh, the, the the kid who was snotty at one of Issa's like, performances... Um, yeah. He says, like, you've always stood up for me when it mattered. Remember Jefferson Jameson? And I was like, from the Daily Bugle? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you the part that stood out to me Uh was, um, it was part of Oliver's character development as well. But, Mm -hmm. like, uh, when they go over to Angie's house, and I think it's established that she doesn't have a very good family. And uh, she brings in, like, the cookies that the mom made for Angie and her family. And she tells her dad, don't don't eat all of them because I'd like to have some. And in the space of them looking at that computer for a few minutes, he eats all of them. And that was like a move right out of my dad's playbook. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. I'm sorry. That's that's really crummy. Mm-hmm. And then Oliver, and all knowing that her dad sucks and, and stuff like Oliver's just like, here, you can have a couple of mine. <laughs> 
I don't mind sharing them. He lied. <laughs> so he's like, you know, caring about someone else's feelings. Right. Just like, I'm going to part with a thing I really like, but it's it's for my buddy. Yeah. Yeah. So I like I like that moment for him. I had one of those another one of those moments of like, uh, I like it for the book, but I don't like it for reality with the like not giving a nine-year-old a phone when he's going around distributing cookies to the apartment. Cause, cause I, I like the idea of it being a safe place for him. And I get that that's what they're going for. And like it, that's what the text is, but also the like much older me who is thinking about the idea of possibly having children at some point is just like terrified of that <laughs> regardless of neighborhood. If you're going to let the kid be free range, they need a phone. If you're refusing to give them the phone, then they're not free range, and it's okay. <laughs> Additionally, in re- in relation to the cookies, um, if it were me and I w- had to like move out in like eight days, the last thing that I would want to do would make a huge mess of my kitchen, making a bunch of cookies, and then have to clean all that up and then pack that too. Like I would instead be writing letters to everybody apologizing for no cookies because I have to pack up an entire apartment in a week. But maybe that's also because that's a much bigger deal for. I think baking cookies, baking cookies would take less time. Well, it would take less time than writing a million letters to the entire neighborhood. No, but I mean, just make the friggin' cookies. Plus, it's her occupation, so it's in her best interest to keep cooking. Yeah, I guess I just I don't. I don't make food often enough for it to be, like, an efficient process for me. Like, if I'm, like, yeah, I'm making cookies, I'm like, that's an all-day thing. Nah, she's got it down to a science. She's got this. <laughs> like, you definitely don't be make- baking cookies when you've got, like, eight days left in a place. But her, yeah, she's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that being said, these days feel like a, like... I don't know. the The timeline for this story is, like... There's a lot happening, and obviously it's split up between, like, five different perspectives, so a lot can happen in a day. But, uh, where where was the... I think there was a thing about... Yeah, because, like, they go out and they play... They play basketball, right? They play basketball in the morning. And then yeah. that afternoon, like, Oliver goes and sees Angie again to for the, the cookie stuff. And just the... I, like, in my head, I'm like, didn't you just see each other a couple hours ago? Why are you doing the whole, like, elaborate handshake thing? But I guess also, like, nine-year-olds. Um, but, uh, I would, I would be really interested in seeing, like, a behind-the-scenes, the author's, like, work of this, of, like, because she probably mapped out a timeline of, like, you know, here's what happens each day, and also here's where they are to be able to navigate, like, who's coming and going from the bakery and, uh, you know, where they are in the neighborhood and stuff like that. And I feel like that'd be a really interesting, like, document to see. I'm just picturing Charlie Day in front of the <laughs> the board with the strings going everywhere. He's like, "Yep, real interesting." Yeah, there's a lot of coming and going with various children, and it took me a while to like nail down who's who just because of all the coming and going and stuff. But yeah. then when we got, but then we got to have like the slower character moments, and then that's how I got to know them. Like my, I actually like was very touched by poor little Hyacinth getting up early in the morning just so she could get like one-on-one time with her dad. And I'm like, Oh, that was, that was really cute. I I will also say, I think my favorite part of this book are, is the fact that they make a concerted effort to just take moments to just be like, like, let's just sit here and listen to the sounds. Let's just appreciate like where we are right now. And I think that that's, just a really valuable thing to like remind people that like life isn't always about like getting to the next step. Sometimes it's about just enjoying wherever you are in the moment. And I, this is one of the first books I've seen, especially for kids that like really emphasizes that. I think that's really cool. Yeah, It is. Also her, uh, Issa's like practice basement sounds pretty sweet. It's, it's a really good setup. She's going to have like, such a cool dorm when she's in college. I that was actually probably the one scene that I could most easily envision in like the film version of this. 
Like, not in terms of, like, being able to see the exact specifics of it, but, like, imagining them going, like, really all out with, like, how the light is bouncing off of shiny things that she's hung from the ceiling, and it's just really, like, it just makes the the space so magical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you ready for the next day? Yeah. Monday, December 23rd. The kids head to the college, which is mostly empty, because, obviously, it's holiday season. They find the art history office where one faculty member is finishing up her work. She knows nothing about Biederman and is not inclined to help them as she is about to leave for a winter break. It's overall a pretty bleak image of college that seems to dissuade the kids, uh, which is an unexpected take. Um, (laughs) On their way back home, they meet a man named Austin Rochester, who conducts an orchestra for teens. He's very kind and tells Issa to audition when she's old enough, then mentions he's looking at moving into the area. Realizing he's heading to their home to tour it, Oliver gives him wrong directions on purpose. The kids return home and continue making gifts for Biederman. Jesse makes a light powered by lemons. Lainey makes a drawing of the brownstone. Oliver writes a haiku and so on. Angie stops by with the results of her research. Biederman used to have a wife and daughter, but they died years ago. Perhaps this explains his antisocial behavior. Isa, frustrated that little progress is made to save their home, heads to the bakery to get some fresh air. Mrs. Castleman gives her an envelope to open when she gets home, then Isa and Benny argue, and the truth about the dance comes out. Benny doesn't believe that Isa knew nothing about what Jesse said, and Isa storms home to confront her twin. She tells Jesse that she has no right to make decisions for her, because they're not the same person. She wants nothing to do with Jesse anymore, and makes Jesse sleep on the couch that night. In the middle of the night, Jessie awakes briefly to find her dad lying next to her on the floor for moral support. He's a pretty rad guy. Meanwhile, Issa remembers the envelope and opens it. Inside is a newspaper clipping that reveals Biederman's wife and daughter were hit by a taxi crossing the street by the bakery, and Mrs. Castleman saw the whole thing. Which, rough for her. (laughs) Yeah, that explains why she, like, went catatonic, you know, when they brought up the name. Yeah, so I was just like, "Lady, are you okay?" And then, like, find out she's witness. I've seen someone get hit by a car before. It's rough, and yeah. the, and it wasn't even. And the one I saw wasn't even fatal. Yeah, like she the the it was a girl like uh, I was on a choir trip, and the girl was running across four lanes of traffic to join me and my friend on the other side of the road. And we both screamed, don't, and push, uh, put our hands out. We looked like we were in the freaking Supremes. Stop in the name of like that. And um, a car, you could see the dude trying to slow down, but he could not slow down in time. And she was hit and, like, went down. And she got up and kind of staggered to the sidewalk, like, back the way she came, and then, like, collapsed in the grass and, like, all these crying high school kids are running ar- around like, oh, God. And there was no way me and my friend could get over there because the ne- nearest crosswalk was, like, down the way. And we weren't going to – we saw what happens when you run out. So we, like, kept going to the Burger King that we were headed towards. And it felt callous, but it's like, I don't know first aid. How am I going to help? I don't have a cell phone. I can't call anyone. Right. At that point, you're actually, like, causing more harm by making it more difficult for people who can't help to, like, get into the situation. And she's surrounded by people who are helping her, so us running over there would be more about us than about her. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, just hitting some, seeing someone get hit by a car is, like, horrible. And the fact that she saw two, two uh, like, a family get hit and both died later. Like, yeah. She's not, she's not going to be okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Poor Mrs. Castleman. Benny's still an asshole. Yeah. For sure. Because, like, she tells him, she's like, I didn't even know about it. He's like, oh, please, like, you didn't know about it. I'm like, how good of a friggin' actress do you think she is? Like, if she looks genuinely confounded, like, what are you talking about? I, this is the first I've heard of this. And he's like, I don't believe that you didn't know. Like, this, the way he just snaps on, like, such a small shreds of evidence. Like, I just heard, like, a Reddit thing where... This woman was accused by her husband and his family of her cheating on him because he came home and he smelled a cologne smell that he didn't recognize and it wasn't his. And then she was kicked out and everyone treated her as a pariah and they tracked down the smell. She got new 
cleaning wipes for the house. And it had a scent he wasn't familiar with. And, and that's where he went with that little bit of information. So, like, Benny acting like this now is such a red flag. Like, don't, like, I guess go to the dance with him because just to have the experience of going to a dance, but then, like, cut ties. This guy is just bad news. On a brighter note, um, Oliver's haiku is <laughs> very good yeah. and also has drawings yeah. of little pandas. <laughs> it says... Yeah, I like this. I haven't bounced my basketball in 40 days. Do you feel the peace? By the great commander, <laughs> Oliver S. Vanderbeeker. <laughs> right, and the sisters are like, that's really, like, not, that's kind of spare. And I was like, that's what a friggin' haiku is. Right. Oliver's brilliant. A plus. Ol- Oliver says the same thing. He's like, do you not know what a haiku is? Five, five seven, five, yeah. that's it. Yeah, five, seven, five, that's all you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know why it struck me as so weird, but I guess I just wasn't expecting one of the takeaways from this book to be like, college is miserable and don't go there. <laughs> I don't know about don't go there, but maybe don't glamorize it or romanticize it. Yeah. Um. That that was just that scene tallied like 110 percent with my experience with academia. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unhelpful office ladies. I don't recall experiencing much of that well, i definitely had like I, I wouldn't say that like all of my instructors were great i definitely had a few that were bad and one of them had a heart attack when we got replaced by a much better one um <laughs> he's... He, he's fine he did die okay 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 <laughs> but he was he was not teaching um right and, uh... yeah i gotta gotta recover <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know yeah i don't know i thought it was accurate and kind of a bold take <laughs> maybe not don't go but like you know maybe don't leave your paper to the last minute like that be aware of deadlines don't expect sympathy from some mean old broad at the in the office because they will not help you yeah um, not every single office lady is a piece of shit just most of them but like there are very helpful ones as well, so just in my experience, they all suck. But yeah, it was a very much like a wah wah moment because <laughs> they were so excited to go because it like it's the castle college. There's this part of the building that looks like a castle, but they didn't. The part they were at was not in the pretty part, and they didn't get to see anything pretty while they were there. No, I'm I'm still just so. I'm thinking of a particular incident and like I it's, I'm still so angry about it that I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> just had that in the back of my mind during that scene and I'm just like, "Yep." <sighs> also, thankfully, I don't think I don't think I had much in the way of having to deliver stuff in person, you know? Oh yeah. Cuz obviously yeah. I was going to college in like 2013, so uh, everything was just digital. And so, like, obviously there are still deadlines, but it does mean that you can literally be in your pajamas still working on it until 11.59 and get it in by sure the... Thing. <laughs> I mean, I think that's still bold to do. I'm, I'm glad that you guys who do that have that much confidence in your internet connection. <laughs> I don't. So <laughs> I would never push it. <laughs> like I just... I would, I would... I always would get so much more stressed out. I would much rather turn it in, like, three days early... Like, every once in a while, I'd turn it in early, and then I'd be like, oh, crap, I should have added added this thing. But, like, it's still, like, done, you know? Like, at least I know I'm getting yeah. some sort of grade. Yeah. <laughs> nah, I always, I was always a last-minute person. It's not a good way to be. If you can get it in early, I, I implore you to do so. But I just have never been built that way. <laughs> You'll fix it later. <laughs> <laughs> you start working on it like on your deathbed. <laughs> well, no, I think I, I think I did. I like when I submitted stuff for publication, I, I had, I turned that in like well before the de- deadline. Mm-hmm. I still haven't heard back, and it's been almost a year. But like, still, 
I submitted it when I was supposed to. Was there a threshold of, like, if you don't hear back after X number of months, like, you're just not hearing back? Or is it, like, is it within the window? They they gave no window. Okay. They promised nothing. But they did say, do not call, do not, do not follow up on this. Do not spam us asking about it. We will let you know. I'm like, okay. We'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> I did feel encouraged for a while, though, where I was like, I figured if it was a no, I'd have heard that by now. But I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Uh, are you ready for the next day? We're on to Christmas I am. Eve. Okay, cool. Well, we're almost done. Yeah. Yeah. Tuesday, December 24th. It's the morning of Christmas Eve, which means the twins need to start prepping the holiday dinner. Unfortunately, the tension between Issa and Jesse makes this difficult. The rest of the family goes to the school to help wrap gifts for a toy drive, and when they get home, Hyacinth goes into the backyard. There she visits the family of cats that live under a bush. The mama recently gave birth, so there are a bunch of kittens. Hyacinth takes one, puts it in a box, and delivers it to Biederman's door. Hey, maybe don't do that. Yeah, do not gift people animals. Uh, don't gift people animals, and also don't take animals away from wild, presumably wild animals. I mean, like, I know it's a domesticated cat, but, like, and just all of it just seems like, please don't do this. All of this feels ill-advised. <laughs> Later that day, Papa gets a call from Biederman, and the kids come clean about the petition and Operation Biederman. It also seems that Issa's friend Allegra distributed Biederman's phone number, and people have been calling him to get the Vanderbeekers to stay, forcing Biederman to disconnect his line. Oliver also admits that they sent a prospective new renter in the wrong direction. Papa tells the kids to apologize to Biederman, and Oliver's apology also includes Mr. Rochester's business card, saying that he's the right person for the brownstone. Auntie Harrigan and Uncle Arthur arrive for Christmas dinner, which will now be taking place at Miss Josie and Mr. Jeet's apartment upstairs. Also joining them is Mr. Van Hooten, Issa's violin teacher. Dinner commences, and Oliver is surprised that the salty beef stew he dared Arthur to taste earlier is actually fine. Uh, Harrigan gives him a wink and tells him she snuck some extra water and broth in to dilute it. After dinner, Laney and Mr. Jeet demonstrate Paganini's tricks, which I refuse to believe he learned in three days, but that's beside the point. There is much celebration until Mr. Biederman starts pounding on the ceiling to make him stop. This is the last straw for Issa. She storms up the stairs and knocks on the door. Biederman answers, and she tells them that he is a horrible, miserable person who is taking away everything that makes her and her family happy. And then she bursts into a vicious performance of Les Furies on her violin. She plays with while the weather outside rages, and only as she finishes the piece does the tension in and around the building begin to abate. Mr. Biederman, eyes watery, apologizes in a raspy voice, and then shuts the door. Issa goes back downstairs and everyone checks in on her, but Jesse is missing. Issa finds Jesse on the fire escape and asks why she did what she did with Benny. Jesse admits that she felt like she was losing Issa, but Issa tells her they'll always be stuck together. Also, Jesse has to do some of Issa's chores. Back inside, the evening winds down and Mr. Van Hooten has something to tell Issa. It turns out that Biederman's daughter, Luciana, was one of his students, and she used the same violin Issa is using now. I feel like I already knew some of this information... Uh, but I honestly can't recall. Maybe I just, maybe it was like one of the only times that I was actually able to predict something in a book, because uh, I'm notoriously bad at, at thinking ahead as far as that goes. Uh, anyways, some of Biederman's pain makes more sense now, and the kids feel less angry at him and more sorry for him. They decide that the only thing left to do is nothing, to finally give Biederman some of the peace he's wanted all along. Yeah, that part where Issa goes up and confronts him, like... I don't know. I really surprised myself because I just started crying when he's, when she's like saying, you, you're taking everything away from my family and you're ruining our last Christmas here. Yeah, I know. I love, I love how direct it is. Yeah. But that's kind of what I had in mind when I was like, Issa is a very direct person. Like just flat out, like, what is your issue to Benny? And then like facing Biederman and just saying to him what they've all been feeling this whole book. Yeah. It's also one of those yeah. things that I think like, it works really well in this book, and I think it works really well in just art in general, but it I, it would be very uncomfortable in real life, which is, I'm so angry at you, all I have to do is play this violin, and it's like, it, it works really well in this, but like, imagine if somebody came to your door and was like, I'm so mad at you. 
Right. I just shut the door. (laughs) Right. But like in the context of art, things like that that are just emotionally expressive work well. So I liked it. Yeah, I did too. Um, yeah, but also I, I feel like if it was that easy to teach a rabbit so many tricks, like in three days, everybody would just have rabbits that know lots of tricks. I don't know. It sounded like he had to be pretty persistent and it seemed really annoying. So <laughs> that's probably why no one does it. But an elderly man and like a very goofy little girl. Sure. Why not? They got the time. <laughs> and really, he's just coming over when they when he's called. Like he does go through a hoop. But if you make that part of like how he gets over to get the, the treat, then I mean. Oh, yeah. Kind of variations yeah. on a theme. Yeah. So I, it's not like he was like, it's like. Okay, uh, calculate pi out to 17 decimal points. And he goes, he goes running up to the little chalkboard and starts writing it down. And we're like, oh, we got a little Will hunting in the house right here. Well, they did, they did also get him to do lie down and play piano, which pay, play piano is still a variant on like come, but it is a, it's very specific. Come and also put well, your again, paws right here. It's not like he beat out heart and soul. It just, you know. <laughs> He was actually um, the one playing for Biederman. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, listen, bitch! And <laughs> plays, like, some really thunderous type of... <sighs> okay, are you ready to bring it home? Yeah, let's finish it. Wednesday, December 25th. Oliver is the first to wake up. He inspects the presents, realizes the rubber bands and old candy he has for his family suck, and goes into his room to figure something else out. The rest of the family awakes and gathers in the living room. Oliver, uncharacteristically, wants to give out the presents he made first. There are coupons for each family member. Story time with Lainey, volunteering at the soup kitchen with Mama, not making fun of the twins' cooking. For the first time, Oliver is being both thoughtful and selfless. The gift-giving continues, with the highlight being a full-size photo of a drawing Oliver made on the wall that they will have to leave behind when they move. Soon after, there's a knock on the door, and it's Benny. He needs to go on a walk where he explains that Jesse called him to clear things up. He then admits he would very much still like to go to the dance with Issa, which she naturally accepts. They return to the Brownstone, and Benny and his parents join the Vanderbeekers for breakfast. Soon, however, Franz the dog drags Hyacinth to the door, where they find the kitten and a note from Biederman to come visit him. The kids all head upstairs and enter Biederman's apartment for the first time. It is filled with paintings of his deceased family, but also with the gifts the kids made for him. He apologizes for his behavior and explains that a few months ago he heard Issa playing Luciana's favorite song on the violin and decided it would be better to be alone. The kids understand how much he misses his family and explain that they all want to be his friends. Hyacinth takes the lead and drags Biederman to his feet. It's time for Christmas breakfast. The kids return home, Biederman in tow, and introduce him to the rest of the group. Biederman settles in and tells them that he would like them to stay at the Brownstone after all. He asks the kids to continue spending time with him, and they're excited to do so. Word spreads quickly, and soon the whole neighborhood is there to celebrate the fact that the Vanderbeekers are staying. Hours later, the Brownstone clears out, and the Vanderbeeker family is alone with their Brownstone, right where they should be. One month later, Benny arrives to take Issa to the dance. He's dressed sharply, and even brought a corsage that matches Issa's dress. Biederman calls from the window to not try any funny business with Issa, or he'll ruin Benny's life. After all, he's a landlord, so he's not exactly busy doing the Lord's work. Mama takes pictures of the cute couple, and as they leave, Biederman reminds them of their curfew. Guess the Vanderbeeker world has one more wacky character in it now. Doing the um the framed picture of Oliver's drawing at exact real life size, that's that's like that's S tier yeah. parent gift. Like that's Yes. Especially when they were, like, moving. So it's like, we got that reproduction of that thing that she, that mom even said she really, really liked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one year, my dad got my mom, when I was really, really little, I drew, uh, I drew a picture of a person, um, and she had it, she has it framed in the living room, um. And obviously, you know, I was little, so like the ears are the wrong, are, are not the same size, and you can see the heart right. through the shirt and all that stuff. My dad, oh my, God. my dad found somebody, uh, to turn the picture into a, like a metal brooch for her. Uh huh. Um, 
and uh that was that was definitely one of his like you know very very thoughtful uh sorts of gifts is is very cool to be clear i really like the 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 neighborhood where everybody knows each other and everybody likes each other and you know i think that that's really cool i think that we got a peek of it and there's a lot to explore as far as you know, future books, getting to know the other neighbors and stuff. I think that that's a really, I, I would assume that some of the books do that. And that's a really cool direction to go in. Um, I will say that the image of everybody coming over and like celebrating, I gave me a little bit of the whole bus clapped vibes, but it was also like heartwarming enough that I wasn't like angry about it. I was just like, well, okay. Um, I wasn't thinking the whole bus clapped vibes. I was thinking of the last scene in, um, it's a wonderful life. When everybody like, like George is in trouble with the bank and everyone and like Mary got on the phone and called everybody and then like everybody shows up to the house and they're like dumping money on the table and they're all, you know, like, oh, there's enough money here to cover what's missing and everyone's cheering and they're like so happy that everyone could have helped George Bailey, who's always been there to help everybody else. And like, that's what I was thinking and probably what she was probably thinking when she wrote this too. Mm. So... Um, I don't like the movie. It's a wonderful life. I only watched the last hour when, you know, he's like about to commit suicide and like the angel shows up and is all like, Hey George, because he actually had a really miserable self-sacrificing life. And then it was going to end really crummily until like the angel shows up to show him what life would have been like without him. I thought it fit, fit in with like a, like a holiday theme. So like, I'm enough of a big cheesy person that I, I like it. <laughs> There's this like, oh, is, is everyone going to start singing Auld Blake Zine? And like, look, daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. But they didn't do that. So I was like, thank you for that. <sighs> but yeah, that was the, uh, the Vanderbeekers of 141st Street. It's cute. Yeah, it was cute. I, I, I made I, something I, cute. <laughs> I, I still have my frustrations with it, but like I I'm not I, I I'm allowed to like a book or you know be fine with a book and still have the issues with it. So that's just where I'm at with it. I didn't say you weren't allowed. No, I know. I'm just you always get to head off the 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 audience that never you know <laughs> says anything to us. Now's my turn. <laughs> yeah, it's your turn. <laughs> I just didn't want you to think that I was sitting there thinking like. How dare he? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what would you rate it? Um, personally, I'd rate it a four, but like I know you're going to disagree with that, so probably have to put it at a three to perfectly balance where we're each at. <laughs> I think we gave the first Penderwicks a three. So does this feel like... I think it we did too. Does it, feel like, does it feel fair for it to exist on that same <laughs> space, or do you think it, it really... Like, would I think you it's really... perfectly fair. Okay. Because we weren't we weren't completely on board the Penderwick train train after the first book, but we were intrigued by being able to see them at home. We were like open to what else they could do, yeah. and I've and you just said you're open to what else could happen here with this neighborhood and this family, because there's like a million possibilities here. Yeah, I think she's laid a lot of groundwork there to like to you know show us a lot of other sides of this this place, and I think that that's. Yeah. That's where it can really, like, really get its momentum. So, yeah. And if the next one's a dud, then we just won't read anymore. It's fine. We are not obligated to anything. <laughs> All right. So next month, we get to return to Amari. Woohoo! We're reading Amari and the Great Game. I'm excited for that. I am, too. I don't know if we're, like, hyping ourselves up too much, but I did look at the reviews or just to see where the star rating was at for like averages. Yeah. And it's over four. So I, we, we might still be safe. Yeah. I mean, even if I'm not like, you know, even if it's like, it doesn't even have to be as good as the first one for me to still be like excited. Like as long as it's not like oh. a, wow, you suddenly got... forgot how to write. <laughs> we got really disappointed by Fable Haven and we did not foresee that happening. So. Yeah, well, Fablehaven spent the better part of the series really, like, really cementing itself as very strong. It, 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 
we didn't see the we didn't see the cracks in the foundation until we've been living there quite a while. Yeah, we're like, uh oh. <laughs> yeah, you spend years being like, this house is perfectly safe, and then one morning you wake up and you're like, this house is actively falling apart all around us. Or maybe Fablehaven is just like a, a fantastic trilogy. Maybe that's just where it. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It felt like he just kept on like, it's got to be bigger. It's got to be bigger. It's like, no, it doesn't. Stop. Right. In fact, there there's an argument to be made that uh, some sequels are better when they get smaller in the sense of like, you just you you focus on the personal. You really dig into that as opposed to just like upping stakes every time. Yeah. Well, anyway. It's Amari, so we're excited. We are. But that's going to do it for this episode. Hello, Fellow Kids is hosted by Mara and Josh, produced by Josh, music provided by Ben Ash. You can visit him at benash.com. If you'd like to contact us, we are on Twitter and Instagram at HFKPodcast. You can also email us at HFKPodcast at gmail.com. We will talk to you all on February 1st with Amari and the Great Game. Bye! Bye!